Welcome to The Litigation War Room, where you will hear great stories and great insights from some of the nation's most accomplished courtroom lawyers. Here is your host, litigation attorney, Maxwell Goss. On this episode, I interview Aaron Phelps, a commercial litigator with the Varnum Law Firm. Aaron represents clients in a range of litigation matters, including healthcare, corporate governance, and environmental tort actions. Aaron talks about his victories in a series of important lawsuits he filed against Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan for charging hidden fees on its customers. Aaron also provides insights on the art of the bench trial. Aaron Phelps, welcome, and thank you for joining us here on the Litigation War Room podcast. I'm really glad you could be here. Great to be here. I'm excited to talk to you today, Aaron, about the so-called hidden fee cases against Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan that I know you've handled with great success uh, and gotten a fair amount of press about. These have grabbed some headlines, and rightly so. But before we jump into that, why don't we start by telling the listeners a little bit about you and your practice? So you're a commercial litigator, right? Yes. Yes, I am. I'm uh, going on 20 years now, uh, I hate to say, of uh, practice. Started out at the same firm I'm at now, Barnum, based in Grand Rapids. And probably like most lawyers, uh, you start out doing a little bit of everything. And over time, uh, I find myself doing full-time commercial litigation. And then uh, that's even further divided down into uh, environmental litigation is a big part of what I do and the ERISA work, which is related to these hidden fee cases. Okay. And that's pretty much your practice now, environmental and ERISA? Yeah, and there's probably a third, a third each of those, and then a third of of everything else uh, that that comes around. I mean, that's the nice thing about being a litigator is variety. So lots of different cases, you know, commercial cases, contract cases, different different areas of practice. But day to day, my time is really is dominated by the uh, the ERISA and the environmental uh, sectors. How did you get into litigation? Did you just fall into it, or were you born to be a litigator? Definitely not born to be a litigator. I talk to high school kids and college kids now and then about who think they're interested in being a lawyer. And, you know, they ask me, when did you know you wanted to be a lawyer? And I don't even really know when it just evolved. It wasn't uh, a deep desire, but I, I know that in college I took some business law classes and I just liked the, the concept of law, how it worked, the logical analysis of it. And uh, coming out of undergrad, decided to go to law school and had an opportunity to come back to Varnum for a summer internship, did that, loved it. And then the litigation piece of the big firm practice just fell into place with the people I worked with. I liked the work. I liked the variety, uh, sort of the strategic thinking about it, the presentation, the, the persuasiveness of it. So it all, it all worked for me and, and I've loved it. I've, I've never, uh, never looked back. So you're a lifer at your law firm. You started as a summer clerk and been there ever since. I have, but you know, it, it feels like the blink of an eye. That's the the crazy thing. I mean, these years later, and it's just, it's just hard to believe. It's like your kids growing up. Uh, I've got a one who's, who started driver's ed now, and I just, just can't believe it. So I guess I'm a lifer, but it has not felt like a lifetime. <laughs> That's great. And can you tell our audience just a little bit about your firm? You know, here in Michigan, Varnum is very well known, especially um, in West Michigan. But tell us a little bit about uh, the Varnum firm, if you would. Sure. It's a 125 plus year history. So we're proud of that. Uh, Started in Grand Rapids, and that's still where our main office is. 
But about the time I started 20 years ago, we did expand in the state and we now have offices in Ann Arbor, Detroit, uh, Lansing, Kalamazoo, Novi, uh, around 150 lawyers and a pretty wide array of practice. There's probably 25% of us that are in the litigation area. And then, of course, you know, labor and employment and and uh, traditional corporate work and, and everything else. Well, Aaron, you've handled a series of cases that might be called the hidden fee cases, as I understand it, um, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan, which I understand is Michigan's largest health insurer, was surreptitiously collecting hidden fees from various um, of its clients, its self-insured business clients. And I know you had a big win in, I think, 2013 on behalf of your client Hylex Corporation. And then I understand that you've had a series of, of, of wins since then, a bunch of settlements and verdicts from Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan on behalf of other clients as well. Is that about right? That's about right. Um, the, the genesis of the hidden fees with Blue Cross goes back to 1993. And I guess the first thing you have to understand is what a, a self-funded plan is or what self-funded insurance is. So, you know, uh, lots of employers provide insurance and some of them buy policies. So they pay a set amount of money and they cover their uh, employees. And if if nobody has a claim, then it worked out good for the insurance company. And if there's a lot of claims, then then the company was the, was the winner in that risk management process. Uh, self-funding is where the company, the employer, they pay 100% of the actual claims. So they're taking the, the risk and they're taking the bet. Uh, they usually do buy stop-loss coverage. So if there's a catastrophic claim, they still have insurance for that. But the idea is you're going to pay your actual healthcare claims. And Blue Cross, this was still a relatively new concept in the 80s and the 90s. And Blue Cross offered self-insured services. So they're not actually selling insurance, but they're the administrator for the claims. So if you're the employer uh, you're going to pay the claims, but of course you need somebody to process them. You don't have contracts with doctors and hospitals and software and everything of that nature. So Blue Cross would be under contract with a company. Uh, they would uh, process the claims and they were having some financial difficulties in the, the late 80s and 90s. They needed money to help support their other businesses because they were the Healthcare Corporation of Last Resort, the health insurer of Last Resort in Michigan. So they had a statutory obligation as a result of their tax-free status to provide low-cost insurance uh, to people in need. And to do that, they had to provide it below cost, which means they needed to subsidize it. And they would subsidize it by charging extra money to their self-insured you know, business customers. And for some time, they did that totally on the up and up. They were transparent. They put it right on the bill, surcharge, X amount of money. And over time, there was just more and more pushback from the self-insured community. And as you can imagine, they're, they're asking themselves, why am I, I'm just a business. Why am I subsidizing senior citizen healthcare? And they just wouldn't pay it. And that led to a problem where Blue Cross needed the money. The customer wouldn't pay it. And they came up with an elegant solution, which is, well, if we just take it off the bill, they'll pay it, but they won't know they're paying it. And people will stop complaining. And, uh, and they did. And, and the way they 
they collected the money is they just baked it into the claims cost. So now if your hospital bill would have been $1,000, they just goosed it up to $1,200 and they took the 200 as their surcharge, their hidden fee. And you, the customer, didn't know better because again, you're just a company, you're making widgets, you don't know anything about insurance and uh, the healthcare industry. So when they send you your bill, it reflects quote unquote claims cost, which you just assume to be the actual claims cost, but in fact, it's the claims cost plus the markup. So that that is what was going on. Right. And insurance, um, unlike other products and services you find in other industries, is not exactly a model of transparency. <laughs> no, no. The, and and the, what you learn when you do these cases is the reporting, the accounting is almost non-existent. You get very flimsy uh, reporting that has very little detail. But that, that was a key element of the case is it wasn't just that they did it. It's that they did it and then they misreported it. So it's, you know, a double error, uh, if you will. And that that starts in the 90s early 90s, and that continues for really nearly 20 years uh, after that. And over the years, it was it was so successful and lucrative that they would just, the percentage of the markup would just go up and up and up. They, they would change that to where it really became a significant amount of money. So in, in this, you mentioned the Hilex case, that's the, uh, the original lead case on all of this that we tried. Uh, it ended up being a cost of you know half a million dollars a year in, in these markups year over year. So millions of dollars just for one customer. And there were hundreds, if not thousands, of Blue Cross self-insured customers in Michigan. So Hilux, was that your first client in this series of cases or the first one that you actually took to trial? It was both. The first for us. The story's interesting in that this came to light uh, as a real matter of public record in, in 2008, because Oakland County, who we didn't represent, but they had uh, a consultant working with them on their health program. He's, he's figuring this out. The numbers don't add up. He knows something's wrong. Long story short, Oakland County ends up suing Blue Cross, and a lot of this information enters the public domain through the, the court system, That and, and that case settles. And Along the way, other municipal governments were suing Blue Cross over the same thing, and they were having success, and that's how we uh, became aware of it, uh, were these, these lawsuits. And I, I think it, three or four of the state court cases went to trial, and they were all positioned as breach of contract cases. You know, we hired you to provide the service, and, and you're charging something that we didn't agree that you could charge, so breach of contract. And every jury who was called upon to analyze the facts would rule in favor of the customer. And so that was certainly good news on the, the plaintiff side. We got involved because, as we talked about earlier, you know, we're a large law firm. We're kind of a traditional commercial firm. So we have lots of uh, corporate clients, so larger businesses. And of course, a large number of them happen to have been self-insured with Blue Cross. And so you go to them and make them aware that this is going on and were they aware of it? And they would say they're not aware of it. From a, a legal standpoint, the big distinction was between the municipal cases and the, the non-municipal. So municipal governments are not governed by ERISA, Employee Retirement Income Security Act. So those cases were pure state law 
breach of contract cases. And we saw an opportunity with the private companies who had health plans governed by federal law uh, to bring claims in federal court for violation of ERISA and ERISA being protective of healthcare plan money would impose out legal obligations, you know, above and beyond the common law on somebody in Blue Cross's position. And of course, the idea is if you're if you're Blue Cross and you're a claims administrator, you're handling millions and millions of dollars of, of protected money, ERISA protected money. So you have obligations when you're doing that, basically to be a fiduciary. So to, to not breach your fiduciary duty and how you handle that money. And there are specific prohibitions against self-dealing. So you have that money, you have to avoid conflicts and you can't uh, do just whatever you want with that money. You need the approval of, of another fiduciary. And of course, in this scenario, that's exactly what Blue Cross was doing. They were holding the money that they were deciding how much of a markup they would apply. They weren't getting approval from anyone on that. They weren't disclosing it. And then when they were reporting uh, on the plan every year, they were misreporting, meaning they they underreported the amount they were keeping and they overreported the amount that was in claims. So from our perspective, it was a, a clear breach of their ERISA duties. How did you go about tackling the Hilex case? Well, you know, the good news is there's some uh, groundwork done originally in state court, but those those cases, as I mentioned, were they were proceeding on a really simplistic, you know, breach of contract theory. You look at the contract, it what's it say? It, it, and it, it's a little more complicated because they did actually put one single sentence in the contract that they would say was a disclosure of what they were going to do. And it, it says something to the effect of your claims costs may include certain charges, some some verbiage that frankly nobody you know, who's signing it really understands what that means. But when the dispute arose years later, it was the language that Blue Cross would point to to say, well, wait a minute, you sign the contract. And this one sentence here says, basically, we can do whatever we want to do. And the, the state trial courts were not accepting of that. And from our perspective, it wasn't relevant because under ERISA, they had statutory obligations, not just contractual obligations. So our discovery in the federal case focused a lot on, you know, what what did Blue Cross know? Uh, how did they report it? What were their internal communications? And there were a series of things that came out of out of that discovery that were extremely helpful. One which was already known was there was a memo done when they came up with this idea in '93, and it outlined the problem that I already alluded to, but. The key passage was, and these charges will no longer be visible to the customer. So that really became internally, we, we call it the smoking gun memo. Boy, that's really tough. You've got that in your file and you're in writing acknowledging that the customer will no longer see these charges because, of course, we don't want them to see them. We want them to stop complaining uh, about it. And then in highlight specifically, uh, along the way, they did a, a request for proposal. So they had a form document that they sent to Blue Cross and asked them about all of their fees. And, and they even had a catch-all, are there any other fees? And Blue Cross would put not applicable. And so that was something the judge found very significant. And in the, one of the most critical times is by 2005, 2006, 2007, 
there was scuttle in the insurance community that this was happening. You know, obviously people leave Blue Cross, right, who are on the inside and they go work in the broker community. And and so there's some discussion and, and people are asking questions. You know, I, I hear there are hidden fees. I hear that there are extra charges. I hear that you don't, you mark up claims cost and, and that would be routinely denied uh, by Blue Cross. But it internally, they were very concerned about it. And so there would be internal emails and there were internal meetings that, you know, our customers really don't understand, you know, what we're doing. And that's a problem. And because now we got a, a difficult situation, because if we disclose it to them, they're going to realize they're paying more and we're going to seem less competitive. So that's not a good idea. Um, and of course, if we disclose it, then they're going to say, well, is this new? And they're going to say, no. <laughs> they're going to say, well, how long have I been paying these fees? And so they, this, and they twisted in the wind for years on what to do about it. And they ultimately landed on a compromise, which is they're going to change the reporting documents to add in one additional report into the back of their annual packet. And that was going to have a little chart in it. And they were going to be a piece of that pie chart that were these fees. Um, and they would just be called access fees just and just leave it at that. And then they were, from their standpoint, they were disclosed uh, at that point in time, but not really talked about. And in fact, Blue Cross had a memo, their talking points memo, where they would coach their salespeople to, uh, on how to sort of avoid conversation about these fees. So there was this sort of half-hearted disclosure late in the 2000s. But so the way we approached the really the litigation, the trial was just to focus on these, what we would call, you know, bad acts and, and opportunities for disclosure that were, were uh, passed up. And this was a, a bench trial in federal court, right? Yes, it was. What was that like? Well, it was a great experience. You know, we had a wonderful judge, Victoria Roberts, and uh, Eastern District of Michigan. Uh, she's in the Detroit courthouse. And uh, she had been very engaged all along. And in fact, she granted um, summary judgment to us on one of our counts before trial. So it's a great feeling to go in trial with the wind to your back. Um, she, on, on the self-dealing count, she had concluded as a matter of law that what was happening uh, violated ERISA. And so the trial focused on two issues. One was breach of fiduciary duty, where there are dishonest you know, statements made, misreporting. And then Blue Cross's, I guess I would say their, their best defense uh, was statute of limitations. So that uh, this had gone on for so long uh, that they shouldn't have to be held to account for it. And that walked itself right into the fraud issue because under ERISA, if there's been fraud or concealment, you get a really an unlimited uh, period of limitations, meaning you, you've got the statute doesn't run until you've discovered the fraud. So as long as we could prove there was fraud or concealment uh, and that we filed promptly after discovering that, we would we would succeed. And and so the, the trial did last two weeks, even with the summary judgment ruling, because we still had to basically go through the whole case and establish the breach of fiduciary duty and all the issues associated with the statute of limitations. But great, great trial judge and in a very good experience. So you were able to recover damages going all the way back to the 90s? Yes. 
right from 93, 94. And Hilux was a, a long time customer at a self-insured plan. They just renewed year over year over year. So you, we were able to cover 100% of the principal markup plus interest. And then uh, the post-trial, the court awarded attorney's fees too, which were recoverable under ERISA. What was the total award? Uh, my recollection is something over $8 million when you added in uh, interest and attorney's fees. And um, I take it Blue Cross didn't simply um, write a check and go on their merry way? No, no. They were uh, very, uh, very unhappy. And what had happened, I mentioned the state court cases, Blue Cross uh, ultimately prevailed in, in state court. So they, were, they appealed those, those uh, adverse jury verdicts. And they were able to convince a state appellate court that these fees were adequately disclosed. I disagree with that, but uh, be it as it may, there was this sentence in the contract, and and that's where the state court landed. And so Blue Cross, ever since then, they and that had happened before our trial. So they had tried to convince the federal judge to adopt that reasoning, and and she was clear that I, I don't, frankly, I don't think she found it persuasive, but beyond that, she was a federal judge in federal court and applying federal law. So it really was irrelevant to her what the state court of appeals did on a breach contract case. But they had hoped to find uh, more fertile ground at the Sixth Circuit. They appealed and they pushed hard their contract argument that there can't be a breach of fiduciary duty when you're following the agreed upon contract. And I I think they thought they had a a favorable draw of, of judges when when it came time for oral argument, but I think it quickly became clear that they weren't going to succeed. The judges took the view that this is a case that had been fully litigated. It had gone through trial. You rolled the dice. You wanted the judge to make fact findings. She made fact findings. She made a lot of them, and they were very damning. She, line by line by line, went through and cataloged, you know, this this fraud and failure to disclosure and false documents and false RFPs. And so they, they come to the Court of Appeals with a really troubling factual record. And the judges just were not interested in sitting as a, a trial court and relitigating facts. And once you start with accepted facts of, of lying and, and essentially stealing money uh, from customers and, and ERISA protected money to boot, they just really weren't having any part of it. And their published decision really created lots of problems for them going forward because now you have this fully litigated, published, presidential Sixth Circuit decision and it it literally says, you know, they committed a fraud. So it's not an allegation anymore. It's That's what happened. They did attempt to take that to the Supreme Court, but they declined to take the case. And you handled the appeal? Yes, yeah, we did the uh, the appeal, heard Cincinnati. And, and all of this, this whole, interesting too, you know, for people who follow litigation, um, it went pretty fast. I have to say, I, for as much as there was, the docu- many documents, discovery, you know, Judge Roberts is extremely prompt. And so she ruled on motions right away. You know, they're fully briefed and boom, you know, out would come a decision. And she moved discovery very, very quickly. And she set a trial date and stuck with it and, and issued her ruling. You know, I've had, I've had a case, I tried a case once in Memphis, a bench trial, and it took a full year, you know, to get the opinion from the judge back after you've closed proof. So she, and she was maybe a week or so. And frankly, the Sixth Circuit 
is pretty fast. And they issued their ruling very shortly, really. I mean, it felt like weeks, not months after conclusion of argument. So it went quickly. And then, of course, what was happening in parallel is there were actually lots of other cases that were, were building up for other companies. And are these cases, I know there was a whole history here and that you handled a number of cases or a number of settlements. I, I believe you went to trial again on some of these, and I know other people were handling cases too. Has this settled down or are these cases still uh, raging on to this day? They're still going. Raging is probably too strong a word. You know, there's a finite number of companies who were self-insured with Blue Cross, but we ended up handling over 200 cases. And it evolved over time. Now, a lot of, you know, many of those were filed before the Hilex appeal. So they, they were sitting in the court waiting for their turn. And there was extensive litigation about them, despite the Sixth Circuit case, because Blue Cross continued to renew the statute of limitations argument and say, well, this, this one's different factually. And these people knew or their broker, they knew what was going on or they should have known or, you know, time's gone on. And, and there was a key ruling in that process. So that there were multiple judges that in a way have been weighing in. They didn't all go to Judge Roberts. They went on random draw to the various judges in the Eastern District. So over the additional time, a number of federal judges weighed in on this and and declined to grant summary judgment on various issues in favor of Blue Cross. And then ultimately, the really the key decision came from uh, Judge Lawson in one of our cases, which involved the statute of limitations. And the short version of it is there's a, a tolling mechanism that if there's a, there is a class action pending about a matter, that that can toll the statute of limitations for the period the, uh, the class action is pending. And there had been a related class action filed, uh, not by us. It had been pending for a very long time, and it was ultimately dismissed. So the class action never went anywhere. But the point was, while it was pending, the ERISA statute of limitations was not running. And if, if that were the case, it added multiple years onto the, the opportunity to file claims. And Judge Lawson uh, agreed with our argument in that. Uh, I argued that to him. And with class action, this tolling idea established by a, a judge, then um, you know many more cases were able to to go forward. And like I said, around two hundred and twenty or so to date. Now, one of the interesting things I found about the Hilex case—I don't know if it's true of the other cases—that is that it was tried as a bench trial rather than tried to a jury. Um, and for the audience, I think the audience of uh, lawyers knows. I mean, that means that evidence is printed presented to the judge, and, and you're not in the traditional trial setting where you're in front of a number of jurors. Um, was that a strategic decision, or was there some statutory or other reason you, you tried it as a bench trial? Well, it, it ended up being statutory. As I recall, we did want uh, a jury trial, and there is some ambiguity in ERISA uh, and the case law on whether the nature of this claim, uh, you could get a, a jury trial. And ultimately, I think Judge Roberts said we could not get a jury trial. So we were forced to have a bench trial uh, by virtue of the, the nature of the equitable relief offered under ERISA. Of course, it ended up being just fine that that's the way it went. But frankly, I think the facts would have would have played well you know, with just about any judge. Now, here on the litigation war room, in addition to hearing about your background and about a significant case. We like to get 
few thoughts about the practice of law in general. And I'm very interested. The case is interesting in so many different ways and, and important in so many different ways. But the fact that it was tried as a bench trial is a, a little different. Um, what are your thoughts? What does every lawyer need to understand about handling a, a bench trial? With a bench trial, you're, you're trying your case on day one. And that's, I think, very significant. Uh, you know, with the jury, you're in the clear till, till they show up for opening statement and you can shift your theory. You know, maybe there's some documents, but you, maybe you come up with a new idea. With the bench trial, you know, you're, you're meeting with your judge for that initial conference and discovery disputes. And so they're forming opinions and thoughts and impressions about the case that they're obviously going to carry with them. Uh, when they first sit down, regardless of whether they haven't actually heard the quote-unquote evidence yet, there's their people, they're obviously formed some thoughts from arguments. So it, that's, you know, if it goes your way, it's a great thing. But it's a challenge that you need to be thinking about that. Uh, and, and maybe, is this an issue I even want to bring up? Is there a risk of more harm than good? If, if it doesn't go the way I want it to, it will it leave the wrong impression with the judge about our case? I actually had a, a jury trial last year, but the judge had, just as an example, he had formed, he didn't really like our case, let's put it that way. And he didn't grant the other side summary judgment, but you know, made some comments about how we would have a really hard time proving our case. And I thought, boy, I'm really glad I don't have a bench trial with this guy. He hasn't even heard my, you know, my facts yet. And we ended up trying the case and we won uh, to the jury. And, and I wonder if he would have saw it differently. I mean, I don't, of course, he didn't say what at the end of the case he presided, but maybe his his thoughts were different. But I offer that as an example of they do form opinions about the case. I think something else that's significant is, you know, they, they tend to be engaged in the trial. They ask questions, they question witnesses, uh, they, they question the lawyers, you know, right in the middle of the case, you know, about evidence and facts. And, and so that's, I think, helpful too, but but different. And unlike with a jury, the jury is coming in fresh, never having heard one thing about the case. The judge has been living with the case, has been ruling on motions, you know, usually summary judgment motions or what have you. So the judge is going to come, in addition to having the background as a judge, is going to be much more informed from day one. Yeah. And if you think about it in the context of Hylex, you know, Judge Roberts comes in, not only has she had all the background of our case, she's already granted summary judgment on, on one count, but she's also has a bunch of the other cases filed. So she knows all of that. She knows there's more companies and and there's more, and there's something about it that's probably lends credibility. Oh, it's not just one company that thinks they've uh, been harmed, but all of these other companies are making the same allegation. That's that's interesting, right? If, so if, if you're the judge at a, just a basic human level, whether you, you try not to be influenced by that, you probably, you can't help but notice boy, there must be something going on here if all of these companies that are totally unrelated to each other, uh, they all seem to think that they got tricked into paying money they didn't agree to pay. One more question about bench trials. Every trial lawyer has any number of tactics and strategies for persuading a juror. Do you use those same tactics and strategies in persuading a judge? I think you do. They're just another juror, right? They're just fewer of them. They're, they're people, and they have an emotional reaction, just like everyone else. You, whether it's emotion or fact finding at trial, you want the judge to be on your side. You want them to want to rule in your favor. Um, 
and you, you give them a reason to do that. And I think a lot of the strategies you use with a jury, you would you ought to use with a judge. You know, keep it simple. I mean, when we're in front of a jury, we think we gotta gotta keep it simple. But for some reason, people don't think that would apply to a judge. Well, the judge is not any more interested <laughs> in all the your the detail and the excessive documents. And frankly, I look back at at Hilux, like we just we still we pared it down, but we still had too much, too much unnecessary stuff. We took too long. Now, in her case, she literally ran a clock. Uh, she had her clerk sit there, and if you were talking, the clock was running, and you were given this trial is going to be uh, this much time, and you're going to get half, you're going to get half, and when this clock tells you you've your time is up, your time is up. So she had a very effective way of keeping things uh, succinct. Well, Aaron, it's been great talking with you today, learning about your practice, learning about these very interesting and important cases. Thank you, Aaron, for uh, your time today and for sharing your insights on the litigation war room. It was fun to be here. Thanks for having me. You have been listening to The Litigation War Room with litigation attorney Maxwell Goss. Maxwell Goss represents clients in intellectual property and business cases in Michigan and around the country, bringing forceful advocacy and creative solutions to every case he handles. For show notes and more episodes, please visit us at thelitigationwarroom.com. That's thelitigationwarroom.com. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to The Litigation War Room. And please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. The Litigation War Room, including the podcast and all website content and social media on all platforms, is for informational and entertainment purposes only. This podcast does not provide legal advice and does not give rise to an attorney-client relationship under any circumstance. All views, opinions, and statements expressed by guests are those of the guests making them and not those of the Litigation War Room. <laughs>